heard one of the most famous stories in the history of medicine? It's the story of why doctors wash their hands. Back in the 1800s, there was a major cause of death called childbed fever. Mothers were dying shortly after childbirth and nobody knew why. There was this Hungarian obstetrician named Semmelweis and he started doing autopsies on mothers when they died. At the time, about 16% of mothers in his hospital were dying after delivery. But he noticed that the mothers who used midwives were dying less than the moms who had doctors deliver their babies. Semmelweis suspected there was something on the doctor's hands that caused the fever. In fact, his friend, a fellow doctor, died from a wound infection that he got when he accidentally cut himself while he was doing an autopsy on a woman who had died of childbed fever. At this time, doctors started their day doing autopsies on women who died the previous night, and then they went on to deliveries later in the day. Semmelweis suspected a link between the deaths and hypothesized that something called death particles from the tissues of the cadavers stuck to the physician's hands, and then they transferred them from the autopsies to the women in labor. Semmelweis instituted a hand-washing policy, and he made everyone scrub and wash under their nails. And it worked. He got the maternal death rate down from 16% to just 2%. But his senior doctors rejected this idea. They made fun of him and said it was implausible and incoherent. He made a lot of enemies, and he moved from Vienna to Budapest, where he finished out his career, and he ultimately published a book about his discovery. But the book was not received well. He suffered from depression and paranoia, and ultimately he died in an asylum in 1865. But 20 years later, when Louis Pasteur introduced his germ theory and Joseph Lister came up with the concept of antisepsis, Semmelweis's work was finally recognized, and he is now known to doctors as the father of hand hygiene and the savior of mothers. I tell this story because in retrospect, It's so interesting that a scientific concept like washing your hands so you don't spread infectious particles is so well established in our modern times that it could ever have been so controversial that a doctor was laughed out of town. This is a significant story because we're in the same position now. A new exposure has been discovered and most people are completely unaware of it. You're probably going to be skeptical about it the same way that doctors were skeptical towards Semmelweis back in the early 1800s. The exposure I'm talking about is directly related to seven out of 10 of the leading causes of death in America. And people who are exposed to high doses of this, their life expectancy is reduced by 20 years. It's not a pesticide. It's not smoking or driving. It's exposure to traumatic experiences during your childhood. I'm going to explain what researchers know about what we call adverse childhood experiences or ACEs and how they affect our health and influence how we parent our children. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. I'm that doctor friend you call for practical advice about your kid's health. I mix the science of medicine with the reality of parenting. Everyone needs to know about the results of this particular research study called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. It was from a partnership between the CDC and Kaiser, and it was done between 1995 and 1997. In the study, 17,000 adults were asked questions about their past exposure to physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, physical or emotional neglect, parental mental illness, a household member with substance dependence, incarceration, parental separation, or divorce. 
the researchers, Dr. Vince Felitti from Kaiser and Dr. Bob Anda at the Centers for Disease Control, compared the patient's scores against their past medical history. And the findings are the beginning of this new science that we refer to as adverse childhood experiences or ACEs and the physiology of toxic stress, which I'm going to explain. First, they found that adverse experiences are extremely common. The study asked about 10 questions, about 10 specific things that might've happened to you during your childhood. And 67% of the people that were studied had at least one of these bad things happen to them. And one out of eight people had four or more. And this was among a group of people that were 70% white and 40% had actually graduated from college. So these weren't really even a population of Americans that you would expect to have been exposed to so much adversity. It may not be that surprising if you think about it for a minute. I mean, how many of you that are listening right now had a parent that drank too much or had a parent with mental illness? Some people say that the connection between adversity and long-term health problems wasn't recognized sooner because it happens to all of us. It's so universal and the bad health outcomes like heart disease, cancer, even asthma, they're so common that nobody ever thought to look for a connection between these diseases and the things that have happened to people when they were kids. But the connection to adverse outcomes is very clear from the data they collected. Compared to adults with no ACEs and accounting for socioeconomic factors, adults with exposure to four or more ACEs before they turned 18 years old are 1.4 times as likely to have diabetes. They're more than twice as likely to have a stroke, cancer, or heart disease. They're 11 times more likely to have Alzheimer's or dementia, and they're 37 times as likely to attempt suicide. The higher your ACE score, the more likely for any of these problems. For adults with seven or more ACEs, they have three times the lifetime risk of lung cancer, and three and a half times the risk of heart disease, which is the number one killer in America. And all of this risk is related to things that happened to them when they were a child. Since the original study was collected from white, middle, and upper-class participants, and it focused on experiences inside the household, another study was done called the Philadelphia Expanded ACE Survey. And that looked at experiences in an urban setting, and they wanted to understand the impact of community-level adversities. If you're interested in hearing more about community-level health, go back and listen to episode 16. The Philadelphia survey asked about 1,784 participants. They asked about the original ACEs from the first study regarding abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. And then they added five additional stressors on, which included witnessing violence, experiencing racism, or being bullied. And they also asked about living in foster care. Among this group of urban people from Philadelphia, the rates of ACEs were actually surprisingly even higher. Seven out of 10 adults had one ACE and two out of five had more than four ACEs. It was established that exposure to adversity during childhood is, like the first study showed, very common. Now, the bad news is that the ACE study established that the leading health problems are closely related to how many ACEs a single person has. I know what you might be thinking. These are social problems or mental health problems. Yeah, it's true. It makes sense that if someone had a rough life, they might turn to unhealthy behaviors like overeating, abusing drugs, or smoking. 
But this new science reveals something about the way our body functions that's going to make you think a little differently about this. First, normal positive stress like anxiety or getting frustrated or starting a new school, something like getting shots at the doctor's office, those kind of stresses, they cause a child's body to release emergency stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. And those things make the heart beat faster and they make your eyes widen. Normal stress like this, that's just part of a child's healthy development. The stress passes and the child eventually learns to be resilient. So some stress is beneficial. You know, it helps us perform better on tests, for example. But the adversity that I'm talking about, that's when a child's stress system is always on from repeated, intense, or constant stress. These are stresses where they don't have someone there to help them calm down. Experiencing ACEs, as well as racism, community violence, things like that, they can cause what is known as toxic stress. This excessive activation of the body's stress response system can lead to long-lasting wear and tear on the body and the brain, just like revving a car engine would for days or weeks on end. Once the association between having bad things happen to you before you turn 18 and being more likely to have poor health was observed, researchers started to wonder why. And tons of research has been done now looking at the effects of toxic stress on the brain using things like functional imaging and testing things like cortisol responses to stress. I even saw a study that measured skin impedance in teenagers with and without high A scores. And another that looked at heart rate variability as a marker of a normal stress response. And the studies showed that adolescents with high A scores respond very differently to stress than kids with low A scores. Their physiology is changed and it's different. Now we know that exposure to early adversity affects learning, behavior, the immune system, the endocrine hormonal system, and even the brain. And I'm going to get a little technical here, but it's pretty cool. The body's toxic stress response affects the nucleus accumbens. That's the part of the brain that is responsible for pleasure and reward. That's the same area that's implicated in substance abuse. Toxic stress inhibits the functioning of the brain's prefrontal cortex, which is where we get our impulse control and manages our ability to be organized, engage in complex multi-step tasks, and it controls actions we call our executive functions. On MRI, there are differences seen in the amygdala. That's our fear response center in the brain. So yes, people who are exposed to adversity are more likely to engage in high-risk behaviors at least partly because their brain's reward center and their impulse control respond differently than in someone who was not exposed to toxic stress when they were growing up. And the physiologic changes in the body from repeated exposure to toxic stress increases the likelihood of a person abusing substances. It changes the brain's chemical threshold for experiencing pleasure and rewards, leading to mood disorders like anxiety and depression. And it even changes the way that genes are expressed in the body, leading to a higher likelihood of getting cancer, heart disease, and so on. If you're still thinking that higher rates of smoking, alcohol, and drug use could explain the higher rates of high blood pressure, stroke, heart attacks, and cancer, the ACE study researchers thought about this as well, and they sorted the participants out by who didn't have high-risk behaviors. The ones with high ACE scores still had higher rates of heart disease and cancer even if they didn't have risky lifestyle behaviors. And this is caused, at least in part, 
because of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal system in the body. That's our stress response system. You know how this works. It's an ancient mechanism to keep us safe. You know, you see a tiger, your HPA axis releases adrenaline and cortisol to help you stay and fight or run. This is a very necessary body system. And it's great. If you're faced with a real threat, you need this. But if the HPA system is activated often, that's what seems to alter our nervous system and changes our immune responses and changes our hormones and leads to chronic disease. And children are very sensitive to repeated activation of this stress system. They're still growing and changing. It's not just years down the road that effects are seen. A lot of the developmental disruption and school problems that I see in my clinic, they are a result of kids adapting to stress. In young kids, they come to the office with stomach aches or headaches, and we can't find a cause for them. These pain symptoms, they can be caused by the body's toxic stress response. One of the most important things that I've learned about this relates to ADHD diagnoses. When a student is struggling in school because of inattention, yes, it can be from ADHD, but it can also be from exposure to difficult things at home. I had a 14-year-old patient. She had been sexually abused by her father, and by the time I saw her, he had been out of the house for two years. Her mother brought her to clinic to be evaluated for ADHD because she was struggling with paying attention in class, and she couldn't concentrate at home either. I did a full evaluation, which now includes an ACE questionnaire, and I realized her inattention was not from ADHD. It was from hypervigilance that she developed to survive in her home. And I'm sure someone knows the neurology behind this. I mean, I don't, but the important thing to know is that ADHD medications, they're not gonna help in this case. And the same thing has been found to be true about treating anxiety and depression. If those symptoms are caused by past trauma, medications usually don't help. Doctors are finally starting to recognize that what has happened to a person is critical for us to understand in order to provide the appropriate, effective treatment. And now we're at the point of trying to identify those treatments. How can we prevent the long-term health and behavioral issues caused by early childhood adversity? Like some of ICE found, that a simple act like hand-washing reduced death rates in new mothers from 16 to 2%. What is our intervention? That's what I'm going to talk about next. Here's what it involves, and then I'll stop with the physiology. There's another piece of the stress response system that you may recognize, and I haven't heard a lot about, and that is that when faced with adversity, besides fight or flight, humans and probably other animals have another response, and that is to affiliate. We look for other people to comfort us or to empathize or to be close to when we're faced with something difficult or scary. In this instance, affiliation, being comforted and feeling protected by a caregiver causes our endocrine system to release the comfort hormone oxytocin. It's calming and it counters the stress response. So when doctors and researchers are looking for the cure to calming the effects of toxic stress, that's what we're looking for. Anything that releases this and similar hormones. And that's next. Adversity and the effects of toxic stress can be really hard to detect. And it's even more confusing because people can experience similar events, but their response can be totally different. There's a range of resilience and temperament probably plays a role. Here's one thing that researchers do know from these studies. 
the most protective factor against diseases caused by toxic stress is having one adult in your life that a child feels is caring and supportive. So what do treatments look like in daily life in the doctor's office? First, we all need to be asking these questions. So you're going to start seeing the ACE questionnaire pop up in your doctor's pre-visit paperwork. And now you know why we're asking. For adults, we ask which of these 10 things happened to you before you turned 18. And you get a point for each question. That's your ACE score. It does tend to correlate with your lifetime risk of all the conditions that I talked about earlier. In kids, we ask parents to answer the questionnaire for kids under the age of 12. And we use an expanded questionnaire called the PEARLS. It's the Pediatric ACEs and Life Events Screener. It's 17 questions long. So there are seven additional questions about housing, food, and the status of their caregivers. We ask really young kids these questions because this early intervention matters. In our clinic, we ask these questions at the four and five-year-old visits. Two years ago, I had a patient come in for their kindergarten physical around this age, and we finished up the exam. And I hadn't even looked at the questionnaire because I had known the family for so long that I made an assumption that everything was fine. I put my hand on the doorknob to leave the room. And that's when the mom said, one more thing. You asked these questions and I just wanted to know, do you think my husband's drinking can affect my six-month-old baby? That story gives me chills. This mother never would have brought up this if our clinic didn't use this questionnaire. And I almost missed the most important factor in this patient's health. It was interesting to me too that she asked about the effects on the baby, but she didn't ask about it regarding her five-year-old. The mom and I had a really good conversation And she got to talk about something that had been on her mind and that she felt like she was alone with and stuck. There's a lot more to this story and what happened. And you may be thinking, you know, the family still has this stress, but the treatment is that this mother knows that her kid's doctor cares about their lives and their exposures and that this mom is not alone. I reassured her that having her as a constant loving caregiver was protective of her kids. Her hugs her unconditional love, those things protect from the negative effects of whatever those kids experience in the home. The other time that this kind of early screening changed the course of a family was there was another five-year-old during her kindergarten physical. This time, I actually noticed that the Pearl score was a one, which is very low. And I said to the mom, thank you for filling out this questionnaire. I noticed your family has had some difficult things happen. Do you think it's affecting you now? And the mom said, you know... Yeah, I'm actually glad you asked. I didn't realize until I was filling this out that I get really frustrated when my daughter yells and is mean to her sister, but I just realized she sounds like me. I yell and I'm mean to her and actually I'm, I'm bipolar and I haven't been able to find anyone to prescribe my medication since we moved here six months ago. So fast forward six months and I was able to help her connect with a psychiatrist. I gave her the number of a community psychiatric referral service and she was back on medications. She found better ways to deal with the daily challenges of raising two young girls when her husband was deployed. Before our conversation, I think I think she just hadn't prioritized taking care of her own mental health. She probably didn't realize that taking care of herself is the best thing she can do to take care for her kids. The most interesting thing I found by screening for these kinds of issues in young kids is that Oftentimes, the only intervention that's needed is to talk about it. 
Recently, we started using the ACE questionnaire on parents who have a brand new baby. We ask the parents about their own childhood, and it allows us to talk about the fact that if a parent themselves has a high ACE score, this can affect their parenting. And often, when a parent learns this idea, it's really all they need. I mean, I honestly think that most parents are nervous if they have had a rough time because this idea is already on their mind that it might affect their kids. But when we talk about it openly and I can reassure them that it isn't destiny, I think that that's quite healing all in itself. So once kids are over age 12, we ask the kids to answer these questions themselves because the questions are really personal things. Things like, do you feel loved? And I can tell you that I have some patients who don't feel like anyone loves them. And the questions ask about substance use in the home. And it's a rare parent who's going to tattle on themselves. Having teens answer these questions for themselves lets us talk with them about seeking out activities and surrounding themselves with people who create a positive life experience for them and people who protect against the negative effects of their toxic stress. I'm sure this doesn't surprise you now. Childhood adversity accounts for 30 to 60% of mental health problems in kids. The rate varies depending on the study you look at, but that's still a lot. We're talking about a group of kids who might be growing up in an environment where they're not rewarded for anything and they're punished inappropriately. And those things mess up the body's natural stress response. Their stress is activated at inappropriate times. Studies of stress responses in adolescents with high ACEs shows they have low cortisol responses when they're older. It's as if their system burns out. So let's talk about treatment. Therapy can be useful when it's done right. So I generally universally recommend a type of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy to any of my patients who have anxiety or depression, except in the case of a person whose mood symptoms are caused by the ACEs they've experienced. If a teen has experienced adversity, it can interfere with the brain's ability to learn cognitive behavioral skills in therapy. So someone who has a trauma history, they may not benefit as much from CBT. In this case, trauma-focused therapies are the first choice. There are these great studies in child psychiatry called the CAMS and the TADS studies. They both showed that the combined effect of an antidepressant medication, like something in the class of Prozac, Lexapro, Zoloft, along with cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, has the most impact on treating anxiety and depression. So you need to have both together. The medication and therapy together are more successful than one or the other alone. But in stress disorders, the combo therapy didn't make kids better. In fact, one study showed that Zoloft, the antidepressant, made kids worse. But trauma-focused therapy by itself was helpful. So if you think you have mood symptoms due to past trauma, you're going to want to look for therapies like trauma-focused CBT. And one way to find this is by searching the Psychology Today website. They have a great database and you can sort it by types of therapy. In a young child with oppositional behaviors and a history of trauma, we recommend something called Parent-Child Interaction Therapy or PCIT. And for older kids with defiant behavior or just being really risky, we recommend Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. That specifically is your right choice. And for everyone... A number of studies have shown that self-care can be helpful. 
I know this sounds weird, but yeah, taking a bath is not a bad choice for a treatment in this case. Like I said, anything that releases happy hormones like oxytocin can change how the body responds to stress hormones. Sleep is perhaps most important as a self-care strategy. Our mood is regulated by neurotransmitters. Those are the chemicals in our brain that signal between neurons. And there's a ton of science that shows that our neurotransmitters function correctly when we sleep, when it's dark outside. So you see, there are these little proteins, they call them the janitors of the brain, and they clean up the gunk in our brain so we can function properly. And these janitor proteins, they appear to only work from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. And I think maybe in teenagers, it might be a little later, like 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. Look it up. There are some great podcasts about the science of sleep. We have to do whatever it takes to sleep at night. If your teen goes to bed at 2 a.m., there is virtually no physiologic way they can be in a good mood. We also know that nutrition matters and the benefits of endorphin release from physical exercise, that's important too. But of all the positive things, one of my very favorite things to prescribe is to volunteer in the community. When you give of yourself, you see the effects of your life on another person and that's very healing. I'm sure it releases happy hormones. All of these things taken together can help retrain the body's stress response. New research on healing the physical effects of exposure to ACEs is coming out very often now. One of the concepts I've seen that I like is called the three R's. It's three things that help someone recover from a difficult experience. The first R is reassure. Kids need to hear verbally and feel physically that they're safe. So let them know, yes, that was a scary thing that happened, but everything is okay now. Give hugs, touch them. We know that pressure on the skin stimulates the proprioceptors, which are the nerve endings that can send calming signals from your skin to the brain. And make the physical environment in your home feel reassuring. Let a child sleep in a tent in their room or use a bed tent or weighted blankets or stuffed animals. The second R is routine. Create a routine to put everyday tasks on autopilot. It makes kids see that things are predictable. The problem with threat and trauma is that it's unpredictable. So when you create routine with their day, with their meals, things like that, in families where the parents are separating, this is really important. Things need to feel the same to feel reassuring. So create a routine. The third R is regulate. Kids can shut down the stress response and they can manage it. So you need to teach relaxation skills like breathing and prayer that can help them to regulate. Deep breathing stimulates the vagal nerve and that calms the nervous system. This includes things like naming their feelings. Kids may not know the words to describe their feelings. And if they're too young for you to teach them those words, try to use things like colors with kids. Ask them, are you feeling orange today? Are you feeling purple? And playing is important. That's important for regulating emotions. Play is an opportunity to pretend and to create a new reality, and that can be very healing. We found something very interesting when I started this health outreach program. We had pediatricians meet with families in a homeless shelter, and a lot of the kids at first appeared autistic. And we realized they weren't autistic. They didn't know how to interact because they had been living on the street, and they were mostly in a stroller covered by a blanket to keep them safe. So they didn't interact with anybody. And the thing that we found was the most helpful for their therapy was to play with their parents. 
Many of the parents didn't know how to play with their kids. So we brought in occupational therapists to teach them. This is a really extreme example, I know, but playing with these kids was so good for them and it changed the way they interacted. And it was just in a matter of a few weeks. Even if you still think this science is bullshit, remember Semmelweis. The science of toxic stress and adversity is probably going to be as influential on medical practice as discovering that germs cause disease was. We just still need to find our ACE-fighting version of antibiotics. This theory of ACEs and ACE-associated health conditions is as powerful as understanding the germ theory and discovering that. There's so much data to support this. There are studies that show that the methylation patterns on the outside of our chromosomes is changed by exposure to adversity. Methylation is like a bunch of flags and markers that sit on the outside of our chromosomes and they tell the body which proteins to make, whether to make a protein that protects against cancer or can lead to cancer. And these flags are moved around in response to the hormones and other signals that are released when we're exposed to stress. This is being investigated as a way that the effects of stress and trauma can be passed genetically from one generation of parents to the next generation. And that's a story for another time. For a long time, we've been missing the boat on this. So I want to share this analogy with you as I wrap up. There's a principle that is ingrained in anyone who has studied public health, and it's this. If you see 100 kids that drink from a well and 98 of them get diarrhea, a physician can treat every one of those kids with antibiotics and they'll get better until more people get sick. Or the doctors can ask, what's wrong with the well? We can keep treating cancer and heart disease and depression, substance use disorders, or we can figure out how to fix the well. If you're interested in learning more about this, I recommend the book, The Body Keeps the Score. It reads as easy as a novel because it's so engaging and you'll feel so smart after reading it too. If you learned from this episode, please share it with others and leave me a review so I know you want to hear more on topics like this. For more from the pediatrician next door, find me on the web at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com. If you've got a question about the weird things kids do, send an email to hello at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com for a chance to hear your voice on the show. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. This show is produced by Red Rock Music. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever it is you're listening. I'll be back next time with more.